Uh, continuing in 1 John chapter 3. So if you would open there with me to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter. But today we'll be looking at specifically verses 4 through 7, although the section is really from 4 through 10, but we'll be looking at that in two chunks. Lawlessness this week and, Lord willing, next week, the devil. 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I think we'll stop there for today. As in the other passages we've been seeing here in 1 John, this one seems really to be written to shut down a group of false teachers, a group of false prophets who were making a big distinction between the self-proclaimed elite themselves and their followers and, and the rank-and-file Christians. They were exempting themselves from the rules, exempting themselves from the need for holiness. And John seems to be hammering at that concept over and over again in this book. Indeed, many of the New Testament books were written against specific heretical groups who needed to be fought against in their day and still to this very day continued to need to be fought against. And so we see his focus seems to be on this distinction between the elite and the normal. However, Here and in the Bible, the whole Bible, and in John's writing, there's really no way to make a distinction like that. There's no dual standard allowed in Scripture. There's no way to exempt some imaginary elite from the same just rules and requirements that apply to all the other Christians. Uh, If anything, the closest thing to elite in the Christian church would be the elders, and they're held more strictly and judged more strictly by the same standard that the rest of us 
that everyone else is to live by. And so their ideas are really contrary to everything the scripture teaches. And, and John here, through the Holy Spirit, is making another very broad, very universal truth. It can't be dodged. It can't be ignored. It can't be applied to other people, but not to us. It applies to everyone. And he starts it off in verse 4. Everyone. He doesn't say, and the lesser Christians, unlike us elite. No, everyone who sins or who does sin. Or as the ESV translates it, who practices sinning makes a practice of sinning. It's the whole group, all of Christians, and all of the Christians who are making a practice of sinning. And so we need to understand it in that context, that it's really not talking about those people, but it's talking about all of us. If we were to make a practice of sinning, we have a problem. Verse 6 is really the key here. And verse 9 says much the same thing, and we'll come to those as we get through the message. But everyone who does or continues to do or makes a practice of sinning is practicing lawlessness and has not known God. A very firm statement. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing on our study of your word this morning. Encourage our hearts, Lord, lift us up as we look into this brief passage, seeking, Lord, to understand the things that you have for us here. We ask, Lord, your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. So he starts off really talking about how Jesus, his purpose. He has no sin. He came to take away sin. Uh, In verse 4, He talks about how sin is lawlessness. We'll talk more about that idea of the practice of sinning that's here when when I get to verse 6. I'll cover it then. But for now, note this link. If you're doing sin, you're doing lawlessness. Lawlessness and sin are really essentially the same thing. Now, there are other definitions of sin in the New Testament that we can look for. Romans 14.23 says... Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, if we do things that are contrary to our faith, to our belief in what is right, then we are sinning. Uh, James 14:17 brings out that idea again. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. If you know what you're supposed to do or believe you're supposed to do it, and you don't do it, you're sinning. Uh, John, it, later in the book, in 1 John 5:17, says, All wrongdoing is sin. But here, lawlessness is the focus of what he means by sin. It's a disobedience to or a lack of conformity to God's law. Specifically, his moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, which we read earlier today, the Decalogue. It's a summary of what God expects from people. Uh, Today, those kinds of sins, those sins against God and against man, the moral sins, are often very much dismissed 
the, the most popular thing today is you know, talk about how nobody is hurt by it. It's not really wrong because nobody's harmed. Uh, it's a victimless crime. Uh, they steal from a megacorp and they say, oh, they can afford it. In fact, Mike was telling us what at $999 you can steal from Walmart and not be charged with a crime in this state now. Less than a grand you can steal and get away with. Um, you know, it's they can afford it. It's not a crime. We're not hurting anyone. People involved in sexual sin say that all the time. We're not hurting anyone. Why does it matter? You know, or they dismiss their problem, their sin as, you know, it's just, it's a personality issue. It's not really sin. You know, anger, bitterness, resentment, lying, cheating, stealing. They're, they're personality issues. Or, you know, it's a cultural difference. Our culture allows this. You can't call it sin. You know, we have many, many, many excuses. It's just how I am. You'll have to bear with me. Oh, judge not, lest thou be judged. We have a lot of excuses. But what is John calling our intention to here? Sin is sin. Breaking of the law is sin. The law of God. If God says it's sin, it's sin. Why? Well, by very nature, when we break the law of God, when we reject his revealed will, we're rejecting him as the lawgiver. We're launching a rebellion against God. We're saying, you may say this is the law. I say you're wrong and I'm going to do that. And so we are rejecting and rebelling against him. It is sedition against God. Numbers 15 brings us out in the Old Testament very well. In Numbers 15, 30 and 31, he says, The person who does anything with a high hand, meaning intentionally and scornfully breaking God's law, whether he is a native or a sojourner, he reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Now, he isn't allowed to make an off peace offering or a sin offering in the temple if he's done it scornfully before God because he's so openly despising God as their king. God is their lawgiver. But that continues into the New Testament because John is saying here in 1 John, lawlessness, breaking the law of God, is sin. And sin is a breaking of God's law. And he says also in this, in verse 5, that Jesus appeared to take away our sin, and in him there was no sin. And I want to start with the second part. It's important that Jesus is sinless. It's testified often in the scriptures. Uh, we see it many places. In Hebrews 4.15, we have a high priest. And it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is able in every respect, as has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. First Peter 2. 21 and 22. For this you have been called, 
because Christ suffered for you to leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus is called sinless here as well in 1 John in our passage today. In him there is no sin. It's of great importance for us to understand that. And he came in the flesh to take away our sins. Second Corinthians 5.21, for, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what does that mean? Well, he didn't have any sin. He knew our, he took our sin and we have then his righteousness. In other words, our sin was imputed to him on the cross and his righteousness is imputed to us and we are counted as righteous before God at the judgment. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 9.28, For Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are waiting for him eagerly. And so he has already been offered once for sin. He suffered once for sins, 1 Peter 3.18, righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. In other words, our, our ability to come before the throne of grace, to come before God, to come to heaven, is because he offered himself for us. He suffered for our sins. So the righteous for them, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This was really the, the, the great purpose of his incarnation. It was not judgment, because judgment had already been issued. Those who sin against the law will die by the law. Those who sin without the law will die for their sins apart from the law. But as John the Baptist said, seeing Jesus coming towards him in John chapter 1, 29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin of all of God's people, Jew, Gentile, no matter where they may be. So what's John's point here? It was necessary for Christ to be sinless in order that he could take away our sins. His sinlessness is part of his essential nature. Not just in his pre-existent state when he was with the Father before his incarnation, not just when he walked the earth, not just after he was raised to glory, but it is who he is and always has been. He has always been perfect and sinless. And that is necessary for his sinlessness to be given to us. His righteousness must be imputed to us because we have no righteousness of our own. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all stand under the wages of sin, which is death. We need a foreign righteousness, Christ's righteousness. And so John is stressing here in these verses that in him there was no sin, but he appeared to take away the sins of his people. In other words, that was why he came. So he was both sinless and he came to take away sin. That is Christ's purpose. 
And that leads us now into verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Sin is incompatible with the sinless one who came to take away sin. Simple, logical conclusion. The eternal nature of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is sinless. And the stated purpose of his incarnation is to take away the sins of his people. Therefore, nobody who abides in him can abide in sin. Simple, straightforward logic. And his conclusion here, John's, is that therefore, if you continue in sin, if you abide in sin, you don't know him. A strong and fearful conclusion. But he makes this same kind of logical argument back in chapter 1. You remember in verses 5 through 7 of 1 John 1. This is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He's essentially saying the same thing again in our passage today and explaining it a little more deeply, making it a little more real, a little more clear. If we say we walk with Christ, who is sinless, who came to take away sin, then we should not have sin in our lives. Since there's no sin in him, and we want to abide in him, then we should have no sin. Now this becomes a real interpretive problem. And the ESV kind of work gets around the interpretive problem because it adds a few words to the translation. If you look back at the old King James translation or other translations that don't add words, First uh, John 3, verse 4, whoever commits sin... And the word there is to do or to make, committeth. Whoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. Verse 6, whoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whoever sinneth has not seen him, neither known him. And verse 9, whoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Now you notice in each of those translations, if you listen to my ESV reading, it makes it continue in sin. The grammar there is not English grammar, but it is simply a a present tense. Whoever does sin, whoever sins. The meaning, though, in Greek can be a little different than English. And the interpretation of this has been a bit of a problem. At first glance, you might think, particularly if you read in English, Christians don't sin. Kind of makes you want to give up and go home. However, if you read through the book in order, and you've seen the groundwork that John has already laid, and you remember back in chapter 1, What does he say in chapter 1, verse 8? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. 
And now if whoever is born of God does not sin. Okay. Um, How do I reconcile these? They seem to be incompatible. And it's thrown interpreters and readers of the Bible for a loop for endless years. The ESV gives us that easy-to-understand translation slash interpretation, keeps on, makes a practice of, uh, makes it very easy. Is it warranted? Or is that simply an interpretation? Is it watered-down meaning to make it more palatable? Or is it a bit of help to help us understand Greek grammar, which doesn't quite exactly mirror English grammar? Uh, That's the question. And one of the commentaries I read, they give seven historical interpretations of the meaning of this. Uh, When I read them, I found two of them were the same. They're just slight variation in the use of them. So I'll give you six. You get a discount today. Uh, they, They were trying, some of them very diligently and sincerely, to understand this verse in a manner that would be consistent with Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. John has said, if you say you don't have any sin and you don't sin, you're a liar, you don't know Christ. If you sin, you don't know Christ. So what does it mean? How do we understand this? Uh, The first interpretation, one of the oldest, goes all the way back to Augustine, but also to the Roman Catholic Church and to even Luther, uh, they, they wanted to narrow the definition of sin in this passage. Uh, you've all heard the Catholic Church's teaching of moral sins and venial sins, sins that can't be forgiven and sins that can be forgiven. And they say that the, the sins we can't forget are those seven deadly sins. And the other sins can be forgiven. And so we can't do any of those seven deadly sins is what this is saying. Except... It's not really what John says, right? He says, sin is lawlessness. Any of the commandments, any of the commands of God, anywhere in all of Scripture, a breaking of the law is sin. Sin is a breaking of the law. No, he's making it very universal, John is. Uh, or the wages of sin is death. You know, Paul also very universal about the application. The Westminster Standards have a little explanation about this. I will run out of time if I give you my research here. But basically, it asks the question, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous, equally disgusting? The answer is, of course, no. Some sins by themselves or by reason of aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. What kind of things make a sin more heinous? Well, the person who commits the sin, an older person, a more experienced person, a more mature Christian, a more eminent person. In other words, the president sins is a little more serious than, you know, if a ditch digger sins, a laborer sins. Uh, because, or somebody who's a teacher, or as we've spoken about, an elder. If an elder sins in the Bible, it says they're to be publicly rebuked because the sin is more serious. Another reason is the party offended. The more important 
important the person offended by the sin, the more serious the sin is. You ask most church people today, what's the most serious sins? They'll talk about things like murder and stealing. What's the most serious sin is sin against the most important person. And who's the most important person? God, right? So it says if it's immediately against God, his attributes, his worship, against Christ, his grace, against the Holy Spirit, his witness, his workings, that's the most serious. Against superiors, against God's people, against the weak brothers, against the souls of others, against many as opposed to against one, all different ways in which a sin can be more serious. The nature and quality of the offense, another reason to make it worse. Is it against an explicit commandment? Does it break many commandments? Many sins break many. Uh, I understand some theologians have taken the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve's sin, and they've mapped it out to break pretty much all ten of them. Uh, You don't have to go quite that far, but many sins break more than one commandment of God. Is it just in the heart? Does it come out in words? Does it come out in actions? It's more serious. Uh, Does it hurt or scandalize other people? Does it admit of no reparation? In other words, can you not fix it? That makes it more serious. They have many such things. And then fourthly, the time and place. Are you committing a sin on the Lord's Day? Are you committing it in church, in worship, immediately before or after? Is it in public, in the presence of others, or in secret? You know, these things make sins worse or, or not as more severe or less severe. The wages of sin is certainly death, but clearly the punishment for sin in the New Testament, according to Jesus, will vary. You know, better the better Sodom and Gomorrah than the cities that rejected Christ in his day, he says. Uh, John, in this passage, is basically telling us, though, that all sin is lawlessness. There's no distinction in his mind in this passage. It's a breaking of God's law. God's law. It's despising him as the lawgiver. So trying to get around this passage. And I think you know men like Martin Luther and Augustine were sincere. But I think trying to make there are certain sins we can commit and certain sins we can't commit, I think is really missing the mark. Uh, second way they've tried to get around it is really horrible. And I couldn't make this up. If I tried, they say that Christians don't sin because what was regarded as sin for an unbeliever to do is not regarded as sin for when a believer does it. Um, how they come to that conclusion, I just I could not imagine their reasoning. Uh, light of even verse four, you know, sin is lawlessness. It's not saying it's not lawlessness if it's done by a Christian. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, Others have tried to make a distinction between the old and the new nature. 
Oh, you know, it's the old sinful man, the flesh that has sinned. It's not me and my spirit. This was a common heresy even in in the biblical days of trying to say that you know, the spirit is untouched by sin and the flesh is sin, meaning matter is sinful and spiritual things are immune to sin. And they often abuse what Paul says in Romans 7. And I'm going to hurry along here. You remember in Romans 7, 14 through 25 in particular, he talks about how sin, he does not do what he wants to do. He agrees with the law that the law is right. And he says, I know that no good thing dwells in me that is in my sin. But you know, sin dwells in me. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But in my members, I see the you know, law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. They say, see! Why then would Paul say in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If he felt that the sins done in his flesh were not his problem, why would he weep and mourn and wail for them? No, it's not an acceptable imaginative excuse for getting around guilt for sin. Uh, the, the two that I combined have to do with idealism. What John is saying here is the ideal state of sinless perfection. It can't be achieved in this life. But that's what he's talking about. The ideal we should all be striving for. Uh, some people, most notably liberal theologians, uh, argue that this is you know, looking forward to some ideal future that we'll arrive at. In other words, then we don't really need to worry about sin now. Very sad. Others that aren't quite as liberal try to say, oh, it's an ideal which some people fulfill more and some people fulfill less. And the, but it's still you know, an ideal we're striving for, but not reaching perfectly. To which I kind of scratch my head and say, Nothing about what John has said allows it to be partial. He's pretty absolute. No one and cannot are words he uses, and those don't really allow for, you know, I'm partially sinless. So troublesome. The next group argue that the sin that Christians can't do is sin willfully and deliberately. If we do that, we're not Christians. Some put John Wesley in this group. John Wesley taught that the Christian is so far perfect that he cannot commit sin. He defines sin rather narrowly to be a voluntary transgression of a known law. Hmm... First issue, is it okay to sin against something you don't know? I think in our reading of the Old Testament this morning, you know, if you, the warning, what was the warning? If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, the wicked person shall die for his iniquity. So they had no idea they were sinning. 
and they weren't told they were sinning, they still die. Um, not knowing what God expects you to know doesn't absolve you from being a sinner. If you didn't know it was illegal to murder and you murder somebody, you're still a murderer. If you find out later, you're, you know, if you knew you were guilty, you're more guilty. Right? We just talked about that from the Westminster Standards interpretation of the Old Testament law and of the Bible as a whole. That if you knowingly do something wrong, you're more guilty than if you unknowingly do something wrong, but you're still guilty. So that's the first problem. The second problem is where do they draw a line between voluntary and involuntary? Uh, the devil made me do it. <laughs> yeah, sure. If we use John Wesley's definition, I'm out. I mean, honestly. But how about David? Man after God's own heart? The Bathsheba incident. Did he sin knowingly? Did he know he was taking another man's wife? Did he know it was adultery? Did he know it was murder? Well, he murdered to cover up the adultery, so obviously he knew he'd done wrong. Uh, well, he said, oh, you know, I'm a dispensationalist and I reject the Old Testament. Uh, well, what about the New Testament? How about Peter? Remember Galatians 2, Peter is judged by Paul. He mentions it. Chapter 2 of Galatians 11 through 14. Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas being Peter, and I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Pretty harsh. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Well, what was... what did, what was the problem? Well, Jews don't have any association with Gentiles. They don't eat with them. Jews considered that sin. Well, when Paul, well, how did Peter know he was doing wrong? Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Well, you remember Acts chapter 10, the, the sheet comes down from heaven and the unclean animals rise, kill, eat, all of that. Peter's interpretation of that. Verse 28, he tells the Jews, or the, the Gentiles he's meeting with. You know yourselves how it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should call no person common or unclean. God had given him a personal vision three times because he was obstinate and hard-headed. Hard and he understood it and he applied it and he lived it. And now he was going back on it. So Peter also. You know, their, their, their fantasy world just doesn't hold up. Perfectionism is harshly condemned at the beginning of John. If you say you haven't sinned, you don't know God. So we come to the last one. What is the sin the Christian does not and cannot do? 
habitual or persistent sin. At times, Christians may, sometimes even deliberately, knowingly, willfully, sometimes even in spite of the prompting of the Holy Spirit, commit sin. The believer, however, is going to be overwhelmed by grief and sorrow for their sins and confess it, repent of it, hate it, despise it, try to do what's right in the future. Now think about David. It was a long time before that repentance came, but it came. The sinner's heart is set on the world, the flesh, and the devil's. The believer's heart needs to be set on God, needs to be set on righteousness, on heaven, obedience. Romans 6.12 says, Let therefore not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. The difference is the believer does not have sin reigning in their body. They are abiding in Christ and Christ is abiding in us. And his abiding in us and us abiding in him means that yes, we do sin. If we say we don't, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. If we say we haven't, we make Christ out to be a liar, John says. But though we sin, we hate it. Though we sin, we cry out, who will rescue me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. Though we sin, it is not where we live. The argument of John has, is very simple in this passage. Jesus is sinless. He came for the purpose of taking away the sins of his people. His people cannot abide in sin and abide in Christ, the sinless one. The two are antagonistic. They're diametrically opposed. They're at war with each other. Right? The flesh is at war with the spirit and the spirit at war with the flesh. We are in one camp or we're in the other camp. That's next week. Because he makes the same argument a second time, talking about the devil. The Christian must oppose sin, turn from it, confess it, repent of it, do away with it, try to purge it from our lives, try to keep on abiding in Christ. And that is why our translators for the ESV Translated the way they do with the idea of sin being a state. We do not live in our sin. We cannot abide in sin. We do not continue in sin. And the one who keeps on sinning, therefore, would be the translation at the end of verse 6. The one who keeps on sinning. The one who, as they say today, who has accepted Jesus as their Savior, but not as their Lord, that person does not know Christ, has never seen Christ. The one who continues to walk in their sin, to walk in darkness, where Christ is in the light, to walk in the things of the world, where Christ and his children are in heaven, The one who has set his old self, his old ways, his old man, the man without God, the man who lives in that does not know Christ.
has never seen him, has never known him. Makes you always think back to that Matthew 7 passage, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. That day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demon in your names, do mighty works in your names? And he will say, away from me, I never knew you. Depart, you workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness, sin. There is no place for people who live in their sin in Christ. You cannot have both. As we talked about, you cannot walk in darkness and light. You cannot walk in your sin and be with the sinless one who came to cast out sin, to take away sin. And that's why verse 7 follows on this. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Let no one deceive you, he says. But first, note how he calls us, how he admonishes us in love. Dearly, tenderly, he calls out little children. And he's toned down the harshness for a minute, calling us sweetly, kindly, because he wants us to listen, he wants us to hear. Let no one deceive you. He's the apostle of love. He loves the children for their good. He does not love the deceivers for their evil. Remember what he was just telling us, these opponents of Christ, these antichrists, these false teachers and false prophets, they were actively trying to deceive the people in the last chapter. Chapter 2, 1 John 2, 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And so these people are actively working to deceive God's people, God's children. And yes, even in regards to our need for holiness. Let them not deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is the one who is righteous. Now, you have to ask yourself, can you be righteous without practicing it? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and following. He says, do you not know that the... In the race, all runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do so to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, keep it under control. Most having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. What does he mean? Practice righteousness means we do it in our daily life. We look for opportunities. We try. Can we overcome the mountain the first try? Can we get in the ring and have a boxing match with, uh, who's that guy, Joe Foreman or one of the other big boxer types? No. Right? We, the little battle after little battle after little battle. Just say no 5,000 times and the no gets a little louder. Practice. Make it a lifestyle choice is what practice here means. Make it our normal behavior. The one who makes 
righteousness, who makes holiness, who makes sin, sin avoiding, sinlessness, their normal desire, their normal desired life, their way of life, who makes their thoughts during the day how to avoid sin, their thoughts during the day, their meditations, how to escape from temptation, their, their study at night of the word and in the morning of how to defeat sin and practice righteousness. That is the one who will be righteous. Without righteousness, no one will see the Lord. And so in this passage, we've been called to turn away from that sin. Christ is sinless. He came to take away sin. His people should avoid sin, should hate sin, should avoid sinning, should not make a practice of doing it. Everyone who does, who makes a practice of sin, is doing lawlessness, and they have never known, never seen the Lord. The believer, rather than submitting to their sin, should submit to the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, make it our daily practice of holiness, repentance, growth, and righteousness. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the encouragements of your word. And we know, Lord, that sometimes... There are passages that are hard to interpret, hard to understand, but given the context of the passage and of the book and of the word as a whole, we know that we can come to an understanding of these things and pray that we would then act on what we understand and know. And teach us, Lord, to shun sin, to practice righteousness, that we might become day by day more and more sanctified in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.